0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. Today's episode features a discussion between a healthcare professional and person living with HIV on addressing and overcoming mental health challenges in HIV care. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Breaking Down Barriers, Dialogues on Optimizing Engagement in HIV Care. During this episode, Mark Brennan Ng, Director of Research and Evaluation at the Brookdale Center for Healthy Aging at Hunter College, the City University of New York, and Nina Martinez, a public health consultant, identify the most challenging barriers they've seen people face when engaging in HIV care, as well as potential strategies to ensure the most effective care is provided in these scenarios. For more information on our faculty, along with a link to the complete program, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started with Nina Martinez. I'm very happy to
1: see that mental health is becoming a more visible issue in the HIV community, starting with a recent JAMA article that I read that talked about how mental health needs to be part of the response to HIV globally. That was very exciting to read about because I don't think it's had quite the visibility and the platform over and above traditional biomedical treatments for the physical complications of HIV infection. So I was happy to have that discussed both in in these articles, but also at the recent clinical symposium that we participated in.
2: Yeah, I think there's still so much stigma around mental health. And then when you compound that with HIV, it's not a conversation we're having enough. So Nina, as the person living with HIV, you've had your own journey with mental health and it started fairly early in your life. Would you like to talk about that?
1: I think it's one of those phenomenon where you... You know that you've been living with something for such a long time, but you don't have the words to express it. And I think mental health is one of those things. Um, I have been living with HIV for 40 years this year, uh, but conversations around mental health, I don't think they are definitely relegated to the margins. Uh, I think it's this some sort of expectation that life with HIV is supposed to be hard because of stigma and the way that we treat people with HIV is depressing. So there was never really in the part of my care, because I've been an HIV patient for 32 of those 40 years, mental health was not something of a particular clinical focus. And I, I will say that in this 40th year of living with HIV, the fact that I just saw a psychiatrist for the first time this year in 2023 kind of blows my mind. There had been some earlier attempts in trying to assess my mental health, whether that be as usually something I raised where I don't feel like myself, but I didn't have the words to say this seems like major depressive disorder. This seems I may have some sort of neurotransmitter deficiency, maybe dopamine. There was none of that evaluation that really happened other than I saw my internist at the time when I was 19 and he prescribed bupropion hydrochloride, which is a common treatment for major depressive disorder to see how I would react to it. There was no do you want some talk therapy? It was just here some some drugs. And at that point, again, as somebody in college, as somebody who was a young adult with HIV, I just grew to accept that that this is (laughs) the gift I've been given in life and that anything worth doing is going to be a struggle. And I had no sense of that. It didn't have to be a struggle and that the people I was seeing for my clinical care were not providing like good robust mental health care. And it wouldn't be for another decade or so that I would have access to in-house mental health care at my ID clinic where they do have a talk therapist. And I had sought talk therapy for about a year because there was going to be a major life event that I was unsure that I would cope well with. And so that was probably the first time seven years ago that there it, it was actually a concerted effort to do this mental health screening correctly. and to provide the appropriate referrals. And I'm here thinking that's a unique experience to me, but I'm finding the more that we talk about it, it's a pretty common phenomenon for other folks living with HIV as well.
2: Yes, it sounds like for most of the time you were in HIV care that providers weren't addressing or asking about your emotional well-being or, or mental health needs unless you brought the topic up and and that there wasn't any kind of regular screening or assessment around mental health concerns. Is, is that accurate?
1: Correct. Yeah, there was no objective screening and again because it was just something that was never brought up, I lacked the tools and terminology and, and identification of knowing quite when I would be having difficulties. Now, certainly in research, I've filled out surveys, the patient health questionnaire nine that, that talks mm-hmm. about depression and things like that. But I didn't know that was something that my clinicians uh, should be asking about, providing and doing that requisite screening. Um, so it's something I've just had to learn and and bring up in my own way that I know that I can to say, hey, I'm struggling What are the things that can help me struggle less that that I don't have to struggle now that I know that I should be getting the care? And once I was able to get to that point, that's when things clicked and I was directed to the appropriate resources. But really, when you're talking about, I think this was the early 2000s, um, so 20 years ago, really just wasn't a thing. And I think when you have newly diagnosed people with HIV, it, it should be very much at the forefront of their care, uh, just alongside of of linkage to getting treatment and that traditional kind of of care that people focus on. But really having a new HIV diagnosis is life-changing and there is a period of grief. It's not something I'm familiar with, but when you go from completely not a patient to a patient that has to have a high level of Responsibility and adherence to medication, and, and you're trying to do all that and hold that expectation of success without dealing with folks' mental health um, concerns, and it's a very high bar of success that we're expecting of people, but not resourcing them with a way to do it.
2: Yeah, because HIV diagnosis is really a life-changing experience, and I guess I'm in a way surprised, but in a way not because I've heard this story before, but if the research for quite a while has really documented a very high prevalence of depression, anxiety, PTSD in people with HIV. And we really don't understand the etiology of that. So there's probably a group of people who were depressed before their HIV diagnosis. And we know that depression can lead to behaviors that put you at risk for HIV acquisition. We know there's a group of people who become depressed after their HIV diagnosis as a reaction to that and coping with that and the life-changing nature of that. And then stuff happens after you get diagnosed with HIV that can lead to depression. And we've known this for a long time and we've also known that depression is one of the biggest barriers to both being engaged in HIV care and being adherent to antiretroviral medication. and. There's a number of us who've been saying for many years when all of these initiatives around any of the HIV epidemic started that we're never going to get to these targets of 95, 95, 95 of people getting virally suppressed if we don't start addressing these behavioral health issues around depression and HIV. The other side of that is that people who are depressed or struggling with mental health issues are also more likely to use substances or misuse them and we know that substance misuse is also a barrier to art adherence and that it can even interfere with how well the medications work it's like there's this big um hundred pound elephant in the room that no one wants to deal with but we're we're not going to get to good hiv care or meeting these ending the epidemic goals and, until we cross that barrier. And your story really illustrates that.
1: It logically just doesn't make sense to me now because everything that we measure success in HIV on is dependent on a single behavior, but we don't address behavioral health. And I hope that the people listening to this podcast find it as as absurd as I do. That's the 800 pound elephant in the room. and, And you think, why would you need to get mental health care for a behavior that is so simple and i would just ask listeners to consider how well do you take a multivitamin every day how often do you take high blood pressure medication every day and and why is it that you're holding people with hiv to a higher standard you know it's good for your health but do you have the same level of adherence as the people that you treat and you're asking them to meet and if addressing their mental health needs is central to them doing the behavior you're asking them to adopt, I don't see why you wouldn't address it other than you see mental health as secondary to traditional medical care.
2: Yeah, because that behavior of, of taking the medication occurs in a context of a lot of other behaviors. And any kind of behavioral change is very difficult to sustain over the long term. We see that in HIV prevention around condom use, But just thinking more commonly of how hard it is for people to stay on a diet. They know that eating right is good for them and it's going to improve their health. But most people at some point go off that diet and all the good things that happened as a result of that behavioral change go back to square one or even worse than they started out with. It sounds though now like the place you're getting medical care has more of an integration between your HIV care and mental health care. Can you tell us about how that works?
1: Sure. They do have in-house talk therapy. So they have a licensed professional counselor who provides talk therapy for patients if they wanted. And more recently, and I was able to ask about that through my social worker. I was having like a not a personal life event, but I knew something big was coming. And a central thing is I doubt my ability to cope with some kind of life stressor. And so I knew that about myself. I was like, I don't think I'm going to deal well with this. And I want to talk to somebody about it is what I probably told my social worker. And she went ahead and made the appointment with the counselor. And so I embarked on talk therapy for six months. And then through that, I realized that I essentially was frustrated by things that any rational person would find frustrating. And for that reason, I didn't feel that talk therapy was working for me, that there had to be something else. And it was that point in my talk therapy journey that I found out that um, HIV itself has an effect on the dopaminergic system, that people with HIV can experience deficits in dopamine. And that may be a partial reason for those whose depression does not precede their HIV diagnosis. For Mm -hmm. me personally, my HIV was pretty close to the beginning of life. In my case, we can be reasonably assured that if HIV has contributed to my diagnosis of depression, I don't think anybody would be surprised. So, in that way, knowing that there was a biologic component for me was really reassuring because so often you're made to feel like that the depression is a result of your personal attitude of something that you could change about I yourself. And Here, learning that HIV is biologically associated with decreased dopamine availability for me made it easier to accept that it's not something I can change about myself. So, what are we going to do in order to help treat this deficit in dopamine? And that was what starting medication had done for me. I had started it in the past, I didn't understand why I was taking it. And so, this time for the second trial of, of bupropion hydrochloride. I knew why I was taking it, so it made it easier to take.
2: So are you taking the medication in combination with the talk therapy?
1: I had been at the time. So one of the reasons I did discontinue it after two years was I became the first living kidney donor with HIV. There are living kidney donors who take bupropion hydrochloride, um, and a lot of them have their doses titrated down owing to having a solitary kidney. Uh, But the reason I I went off of it before the donor evaluation was because in my mind, taking less medication meant that I would have a healthier kidney for my recipient. And Mm -hmm. that may or may not have been the case, but it it was a decision I made for myself. And as part of the living kidney donor evaluation, I did have a psychiatric evaluation and he was aware that I went off the medication. So it wasn't a concern I had post-donation. I thought that I would be able to take this medication after donation. And I had used it again for some time. But over time, my ability to tolerate a therapeutic dose of bupropan hydrochloride had been diminished. And so I no longer take it. And uh, that is one of the things I want other people living with HIV who decide that they may in the future want to donate a kidney as they can. It's legal. It's been legal for 10 years to keep in mind the other medications other than because they tell you don't take ibuprofen and they just focus the donor evaluation on that but with HIV positive donors I really want transplant evaluation teams to talk about patients use of of antidepressant medication because that's an important conversation to have that I did not have and it was out of sight out of mind I just didn't think about it and so I, I found out the hard way post donation that not only could I not take a, a reduced effective dose, I, I couldn't take any therapeutic dose. So I'm currently exploring alternatives to uhpropian hydrochloride for major depressive mm-hmm. disorder.
2: I'm excited well, c- to congratulations. see the patients.
1: Yeah, patients will have more than <clears throat> one option through research, but that is definitely something that was a learning curve for me.
2: That's such a game changer and such a contribution, really, to the care of people with HIV overall, that people with HIV can be organ donors. And that opens up, there's always a shortage of available organs for people who need them. So thanks for being a pioneer for that because that's really going to change a lot of people's lives for the positive.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to, to change the perception and, and to reduce stigma um, through that contribution. And I wanted people to know that. Because a lot of people do think that if you're somebody living with depression, that you can't be an organ donor. And it's I live with a mental illness, let's not conflate that with somebody who is incapable of making a medical decision Mm -hmm. for themselves. And an organ donation as a living donor was a medical decision I was making for myself. And I was cleared by a psychiatrist to make that decision for myself. So being able to confront the stigma of both HIV and depression that people with mental illness can't do big things. I was very happy to be a part of that.
2: In addition to not wanting to deal with depression and other mental health issues, in a couple of research studies I've done, I think another issue for the un, uh, not addressing mental health and people with HIV could be due to lack of capacity in the system. So in one instance, We were recruiting for a study. We were trying to follow the standards of care in New York State for people who have mental health issues. And that requires a psychiatric evaluation. And this person scored really high. I think we were using that PHQ-9 assessment, really high in depressive symptoms. And we were trying to get him a psychiatric assessment. He was a a Medicaid patient. And it was going to take three months to get him an evaluation. And of course, we lost him before we could schedule that appointment. And I don't know what happened to this person. In another instance, I was working with one of the big aid service organizations of the city to recruit people, and they had just opened a mental health clinic. And the idea was that if people screen positive for depression, we were going to refer them to their mental health clinic. And we overwhelmed them in a couple of weeks, we found so many people in their client population who had really high levels of depressive symptoms. Even their brand new clinic wasn't able to accommodate all these people. I'm wondering in your journey, have you ever, <clears throat> did you ever come across like, difficulty obtaining services or this kind of lack of capacity, or do you know other people living with HIV who might've had these kind of experiences?
1: I'm just so struck by what you just said about overwhelming them because you all use the patient health questionnaire nine. And it wasn't until just very recently that I found that posted publicly online through the University of Washington's website. And I thought to myself, how wonderful would it have been to have found that website 20 years ago? To have something concrete and objective that I could fill out in my own time without any pressures of answering it in front of somebody else, without any pressures of giving the socially desirable answer that I could answer mm-hmm. honestly, print that out and take it to a clinician instead of just guessing and having these uh, subjective senses of, of not feeling well, but to have specific concrete ways to identify that I haven't been myself for the last two weeks and these are the ways. And uh, I I would think that if more patients were to find that resource as you were giving the screenings, that that's the barrier that they probably have is that they're not equipped with any tools that are within their purview. Uh, Lack of capacity is is Mm -hmm. one thing, um, but we're not resourcing patients to be empowered themselves with the knowledge that, that you all have as clinicians, if we could find that for ourselves, and be in a space where we're able to like ask ourselves the really hard question of, am I okay? And go through that process of saying, here's something that is objectively telling me I'm not okay. And, and now I feel empowered to tell my healthcare provider about it. I think is a very different experience than depending on someone to screen you.
2: Right. Sometimes I think we know something's off, but we don't have the words really to articulate that. And then when you're in a clinical setting, this happens to me all the time. Like you have five things you want to talk about and you get in there and it just completely goes out of your head. So being able to go into that encounter and being able to articulate in a specific way what the issue is, like I feel hopeless, or I feel sad all the time, or these are some of the common symptoms. So it sounds like one of the things you're suggesting is we need better patient education around mental health. I think we do a good job with patient education when it comes to HIV medication and adherence and talking about that, but maybe we need to do as much, if not more, when it comes to mental health issues.
1: Yeah, I think the education is there once somebody is diagnosed, but how do you get people to the road to diagnosis is my question. And I I have found my way through to a diagnosis. It took me 13 years to get there before I was like, I can't even say at that point I was properly screened. It just kind of came the diagnosis that fit. And it it was empiric in that I was responding well to bupropion hydrochloride. So then the assumption is, my depression is is dopamine related and, and that sort of thing. And I don't think that's how we should approach it. There should be a systematic evaluative approach. And for some reason, people with HIV aren't getting it. But there are public resources out there just because I personally don't know about it and the patients don't personally know about it doesn't mean that they're not there. And we're not doing a good job of making sure that patients know what's out there.
2: I think we could make it more accessible because... Even if you think of somebody who thinking, maybe I'm feeling depressed or something like this, patient health questionnaire does not communicate a screen for depressive symptom. There's nothing you might find it on a Google search, but I think there's probably better ways to educate and provide outreach to the community. There's a lot of, in the HIV space, a lot of community events, health fairs. Things like that. And those might be some opportunities to talk about mental health, but maybe talk about it in a way that is not going to be stigmatizing or is not going to be threatening or off-putting to people. Talking more about it in the context of, say, emotional well-being. Like, how are you feeling day-to-day? How are you functioning in terms of your well-being versus coming at it from depression? Um, Right.
1: I think I was just thinking of (laughs) the Patient Health Questionnaire nine reminded me of of something like a symptom checker, like you see those ubiquitous internet symptom checkers, but they're Mm -hmm. all about physical health, and we don't have anything analogous for mental health. So the fact that somebody was posting the PHQ nine publicly for me was was interesting to think about. And again, what are the tools that patients have that aren't reliant on Somebody screening them. Because again, if you can't get an appointment or if your doctor decides not to talk about mental health, how are you supposed to get that information?
2: The, the simplest screener for depression is just one sentence Have you felt sad or depressed in the past two weeks? And that's almost as accurate as the PHQ 9. And that's a question I think that's easily posed to patients in a clinical encounter. And if the person says yes, then that could be the opportunity to do a more in-depth screening or more in-depth assessment because there's an indication there's a problem. So it doesn't even take the PHQ-9 to do this assessment. It's really just asking the question. I think the other thing, because of the stigma around mental health, it may lead people with HIV to not want to talk about it. So I have a colleague who is an activist. He was with ACT UP. We were doing this research on people aging with HIV and kept talking about the high prevalence of depression. And he would come back at us and say, why are you layering more stigma on me? I'm I'm stigmatized enough because of HIV and now there's this additional stigma. And I was really torn because the last thing I want to be doing is stigmatizing people or making them feel bad about themselves. On the other hand, if we don't talk about this at all, no one's going to do anything about it. So I don't have a good answer to that, but I think that's kind of additional challenge when we're talking about depression and other mental health issues with people with HIV. Is how can we approach it in a way that's not going to make them feel more stigmatized? Because stigma is one of the biggest contributors to depression. So you get into kind of this vicious circle and that's not helpful to anybody. They're
1: both spheres of discussion that have a huge societal stigma, and in a way, they do internalize that. So sometimes, as much as you can equip a patient to to have knowledge around mental health, in essence, when they're going through a mental health crisis, and you're, in a way, I can see where what I said is asking people to be bigger than their crisis, and that's a hard thing to ask of folks, because I've certainly been there where you know, I'm going through something, but to ask me to be bigger than that so I know what to do for myself, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So, having a one-sentence question that any clinician can ask in the patient encounter to, to prompt that conversation, I think, is a very salient point.
2: Yeah, This research study we were doing was addressing one of the other contributors to depression that we know about, which is social isolation. And this this was an intervention that was developed for actually people in the workplace to improve productivity, but my colleagues and I saw it and thought, well, this would be a great thing to try for people with HIV. And what it was a once a week call from a care manager, it wasn't telehealth. It wasn't therapy over the phone, but it was just kind of a checking call of, hi, how are you doing, are you having any issues this week like the, the issues could be from having problem with your roommate to having trouble with adherence with your medication or some people talked about immigration issues. But one thing that we found is it was really effective at reducing depression in the group overall. That intervention reduced depressive symptoms by half over six months. The other thing we saw was that as the depression got better, a lot of people either stop or cut down their use of substances. And I, th- I think we got one quote from somebody who told one of their care managers, these calls make such a difference every week because just knowing that somebody gives a damn really makes me feel like I should be trying And life is worth living. Can you talk a little bit about social isolation and how that might contribute to mental health either from your experience or people you know?
1: Yeah, I can, as an introvert in terms of the word social isolation, for me, I don't have a problem being by myself. That's how I reload up on my energy. But social isolation is a little different where you just don't care if you connect with somebody else. I can be a social person, but it's something that takes a lot of energy for me. But that's different than I don't want to see anybody Mm Because I'm in my feelings or I'm in whatever I'm going through and I just can't see a way out. It's when your emotions are just getting so overwhelming that you can't even reach out. So the weekly calls that you're having that you had just described in your research, it's a way of somebody reaching in when you might not be able to reach out yourself.
2: One interesting thing we did with that intervention was... Usually, it's a one-way communication between a, a therapist or a counselor and their patient. But we allowed the people who were in our study to call the care managers if they felt like they needed to talk, which kind of turned the whole thing on its head. And people found that really beneficial, too, that when they felt like they needed to talk to somebody, there was somebody they could call who would be objective and non-judgmental and could just listen and cure them out. And there was actually a a psychologist in New York who heard about our study and she worked with people with HIV. And so she decided to let her clients start doing that and calling her, which is scary for a lot of providers to think like they're making themselves too vulnerable or people are going to take advantage of that. But on the other hand, it really made a difference for people to have that resource that they could call on when they needed it.
1: Just to know that somebody is there. It's something that I, it wasn't until I had friends who unfortunately still died of Kaposi's sarcoma, who were in their early 30s, who were young black gay men. And that's a very painful experience. And in the post uh, highly active antiretroviral therapy era, when we have combination ART, when we know that that works. to to see people still dying at the age that they were dying in the 80s. And everybody is wondering why. And didn't these people have access to care? They did. Didn't they have access to medication? They did. But they had unaddressed mental health concerns. They had social isolation. And the best way I can just explain it to people is that something inside them broke. They knew all of the right things that they needed to do for their physical health. And they knew but because they didn't know what to do with their emotional health that they became socially isolated and the fact that we as an HIV community don't bother to reach in and that people living with HIV for a much longer amount of time they for some reason we see the social isolation we all know that it happens and it becomes this inevitability and I know for myself seeing these two friends who had died I had made like a, almost a pact, an accountability buddy pact to make sure that I always had someone I knew I could reach out to. I mean, we're friends, but we made a pact with one another like, hey, I'm always here for you, reach out and vice versa. And no matter what we're doing, and just, just so that we know somebody is there. So it was very similar to what you were doing is having this two-way Conversation because a lot of people don't have that kind of social support. And then that's where we get people who stop self care, who stop taking their medication. And then we end up with, they get preventable um, opportunistic infections and die from that. So, yeah, social isolation in the context of major depressive disorder, I have experienced, but it's something that because I have experienced it in that respect, I am trying as I live longer with HIV to make sure that I don't walk down that same path. So it's very front of mind for me. And uh, what's gonna make that easier to stave off is getting my mental health concerns addressed and then maintaining a a robust social support system.
2: Yeah, so one of my husband's relatives was HIV positive and he knew I worked in HIV, never talked to me about it. I think that the stigma around HIV was so much. He stopped taking his medications and passed away as a result of that. What's sad about this is he wasn't socially isolated. He had a partner. He had a lot of friends. When we went to his memorial service, he worked for an airline and had a lot of really great friends, co-workers, and they did a lot of things together. But none of them knew he was HIV positive. This was like the secret he was holding on to. And I think because of the stigma around that, he just couldn't talk to anybody and get the support he needed. And sounding like a young black gay man that you knew who also felt that kind of isolation and despair and just kind of point give up.
1: When you don't have anyone to have the really hard, dark, twisty, hard conversations with about the things that are really going on in your life, like it's I don't know, in a way, when society has written off HIV as something they need to be concerned about, I say it's a treatable disease. It's a lot to manage. Um, So I know that a lot of clinicians talk about it as a manageable disease. It's a manageable disease for clinicians, but for the rest of us, it is a treatable disease. And um, so in a way, we've created a stigma um, based on who has good access to care. And if you're somebody who is struggling with getting access to care, whether it's medical care or mental health care, you're almost not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to talk about that you're having a hard time. And in a way that's where we get to internalize the stigma because it's like everybody else is having a fine time with HIV and I'm not, is there something wrong with mm-hmm. me? And I don't have anyone to to talk about what I'm feeling uh, with, yeah.
2: What do you think some of the solutions might be to breaking down some of these barriers and really help people get the care they need, both for their HIV, but also for any mental health concerns that they have?
1: I think we have to make it okay not to be okay. There's just such a large pressure to take everything Positively to take a negative and turn it into a positive, and HIV something itself is something that is there's a lot of trauma and a lot of not good things tied to HIV, but we're so focused on like overcoming that it comes at the price of kind of ignoring central issues. We're avoiding the 800 pound elephant in the room, and it's I don't see a a way to success if we keep ignoring the very things that we need to be addressing. I don't know if I would call it toxic positivity, but it's just, you have to let people not be okay. It's okay to not be okay, but there are things we can do about it. We just have to know first and foremost that you're not doing okay, but if you're masking it, how do we know that you're somebody who needs help if if your society is making you mask it all the time?
2: So it sounds like that becomes another point of judgment. Right, that you should be thinking positive about this, you should be managing it. But sometimes people need a lot of support. And living with HIV, even if you're doing well, can be very complex. And needing adhere to the medication, making sure that you're taking care of your health in other areas, and then the whole aspect of mental health. One of the things we we've talked about in terms of better care for people with HIV and breaking down some of these barriers is moving to these integrated care models so that if you're engaged in a clinical situation, it's not just going to be with the ID doctor, but other people, is, say, for example, if you have issues with your heart, there's a cardiologist on the team. If you're having mental health concerns, there might be a psychologist or a psychiatrist involved. If you're having difficulty with everyday life issues like housing or employment there's a social worker on your team who can help out with some of those things and those have been really successful but again it's coming down to a lack of capacity in mm-hmm. that these kind of integrated care services just aren't available to most people and i I think your story where the situation you're in now where there was this integration of mental health care with your HIV care, and that seemed to be really beneficial to you, just that little bit of integration.
1: Yeah, it's certainly not something I would have sought out separately from where I regularly receive care. It's not something that would have occurred to me because I was always conditioned to think that mental health care was like this extra thing that you could get if you could afford it. And thanks to the Affordable Care Act that provides some coverage of mental health services, that really did make a difference. Being able to find out about mental health care services and then having the resources to be able to have it covered for me, that those two things definitely made a difference in terms of how I was able to receive the mental health care that I needed. But again, I realized that I do live in a large metropolitan area of Atlanta. And what do we do for patients who don't live there? And How do we tackle this capacity issue? And again, I think the one question that you mentioned earlier that we can ask all patients, we can fret about the capacity issues, but that doesn't make the question not worth asking if we don't have somewhere for patients to go. Mm Because I think a lot of patients would just be surprised to hear a doctor say, have you been sad and how have you been feeling that's not a reference to any kind of pain or uh, physical ailment.
2: Yeah, and I think it comes down to policy decisions we make, right, that when the Affordable Care Act mandated that a certain amount of treatment for mental health and and behavioral health problems had to be included in your health care plan, that made a huge difference. But we're still seeing these issues about getting people the help that they need, and those are issues that can be solved at a policy level. It's all about where are you putting the emphasis and are you going to back that up with some money that's going to allow those services to happen? We have that medical board that decides what kind of screenings are worth paying for.
1: Oh, the United States Preventive Services Task Force.
2: Very good. (laughs) <laughs> good we have a public health expert on there. But when they determine that something is cost effective and worth it, all of a sudden insurance has to pay for it. And Yeah, it happened with HIV treatment. If we could get similar determinations around mental health treatment and mental health screening, I think that would go a long way to addressing the problem.
1: So we could get mental health screening, a grade A or grade B recommendation by the United States Preventative Mm -hmm. Services Task Force. And then that would mandate insurers to cover those services.
2: It's like a shingles vaccine.
1: Yeah, I think that the getting these policy decisions to recognize that central to what we ask patients to do, and I think in HIV, we have this ability to stigmatize patients that that they have this virus is like a bad thing. And this body with a virus is a bad thing. So we tend to focus on patients who don't have HIV to think that the patient's not getting HIV is how we get ourselves out of an epidemic, but we're not going to treat our way out of an epidemic. We need to involve people living with HIV in our approach to ending the epidemic. And we can't, be involving people with HIV only in the context of you pose a health risk to others. We, we have to treat people with HIV as people mm-hmm. with needs, healthcare needs that need to be addressed. And, and the idea that we're just trying to ignore that they have mental health concerns is we do that for people not living with HIV. We find a way not to acknowledge mental health, but it, the need be, to address mental health aid becomes more acute, particularly in our response to the HIV epidemic.
2: I totally agree. It, we need to take the moral question out of health care and mm-hmm. blaming people for the health conditions, the mental health conditions that they're dealing with. It's, it's not a moral question, it's a health care question. And I think if we could get there, that would make a huge difference in how we address mental health, how we address HIV care, and a lot of things outside of HIV where we still have moral judgment about why people are struggling like substance misuse that's something that we pin on the person who's dealing with that challenge as an excuse not to treat it as a medical condition
1: it becomes easier for people to not worry about themselves in that regard because they're using the the moral judgment as a reason for why somebody is in the situation they're in and they can assure themselves oh that's not going to be me because i don't do that and um, Mm -hmm. that's the evilness of stigma that's designed to do to, to other somebody and yeah I think the more that we fight against that the more that we just normalize some people's brains are different than other people's brains and that's okay and that viruses happen whatever we can do obviously individual responsibility isn't enough and we need to put these systemic structures in place to prioritize both treatment and prevention. This othering of patients and treating them as the problem it is not getting us to a solution.
2: I think that's, that's very practical. well said.
0: Thank you very much to Mark Brennan Ng and Nina Martinez. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining in. As a reminder to view the full program, Breaking Down Barriers, Dialogues on Optimizing Engagement in HIV Care, please click on the link in the show note. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.